Well, this is my first time to find out what it's like to be here on a Sunday night when camp is in session. Now I know. So I have two announcements that relate to uh, camp. And, uh, well, they relate to us as it relates to camp. I was going to say something, Dale, and the announcements did about uh, all of our campers and staff that are down there uh, this week who it's good to um, embarrass them with mail. And so I figured that that may be just a shot in the dark for you. You may not know who it is that you want to uh, give cards and letters to and so forth. So what I did was I had a couple of sheets from Derek of the roster, at least as it was today, And so I have done highlights of the male campers and the female campers and staff. As far as I knew it, I had to write in the kitchen staff. So there may be more of those. So just come up here and take a picture. Uh, And then you can just have a card writing fest and write all of them a card and send it down there to them and just bombard them with love and and letters. So that's uh, announcement number one as it relates to camp. The second announcement has to do with a deviation from uh, our normal schedule in this quarter, we have nine speakers coming in for our summer series, uh, and as uh, the result of that, um, with camp taking so many of our members away, and mostly a lot of our, our kids, we are going to treat this like a gospel meeting or a regular Sunday night service. And so just for this week only, uh, we will uh, conduct services as we would uh, on a Sunday night. We'll have our singing and prayers, and then the speaker will get up. Dan Chambers, one of uh, our greatest speakers in the area, a wonderful um, gospel preacher, will be here. And we want to have as many folks as we can. Invite all your neighbors and all your friends. You need to do that anyway, but it would be an encouragement to him. And we'll have uh, uh, just an, uh, he'll offer the invitation at the end of that. So keep that in mind. Uh, as we think in terms of this Wednesday night. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes in, in a positive sense, he points back to the Old Testament and he says that the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. And the end result of that is that through patience and consolation of the Scriptures we might have hope. There are people that we look to in the Old Testament that in their example, they encourage us. They cause us to want to do what they did in order to please God in the manner or the mindset that they had. But sometimes we look back to the Old Testament and the examples that are given for us are not positive. I think, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul draws this long analogy out about what the wilderness wandering generation was like. And as the result of their sin and their disobedience, they were destroyed by God in the wilderness. You remember that. All those over the age of 20 who were not in Joshua and Caleb's lot, they were killed because of their disobedience. And the Apostle Paul says that they were an example to us upon whom the ends of the world have come, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. The book of Hebrews is a book that takes extensively from the Old Testament, draws from Old Testament symbols and uh, events. And as you look through what is said in the book of Hebrews, pointing back to the Psalms, much of the book of Hebrews is built around three specific Psalms and the worship under the old law. The Hebrews writer takes all of that to teach a New Testament truth to Christians. 
So I want to borrow from that page. There's all kind of symbolism that we draw from. There's what we call types and antitypes. That Moses is a type of Christ. That there are things in Moses' life that Christ more fully fulfills. The day of atonement, the sacrifice on that one day of the year in which the high priest made sacrifice for the sins of the people. It's a type of Jesus' suffering on the cross. So with that in mind, I'd like to take you back to the book of Ezra. And in the book of Ezra, we find a principle that's not peculiar to Ezra. You find it in Nehemiah. You find it in uh, Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi. It is that period of time when the people of God have come back from captivity in Babylon and now they've got work to do to get things back to the way they were before all of them had been carried off far away from their homeland and now they were back home. So I point out to you as we get started tonight in Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1, it's interesting that Ezra, in writing about events, you won't even see Ezra's name mentioned in the book till Ezra chapter 8, but Ezra in writing the book says that this is the time that Jeremiah the prophet had ta- uh, talked about when 70 years had been fulfilled and they had come back from the land of Babylon to their homeland. Well, this 70 years is interesting. This is a 70 years that Ezra's talking about after they had come back home. What I find interesting is, is that Daniel points to this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 2. He says, it was in the first year of Darius the king that I, Daniel, was looking in the, the books of the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet about the desolations of Jerusalem concerning Babylon, namely 70 years. So here is now a very old Daniel at the end of his life who has been anticipating. He had read what was said by Jeremiah the prophet and he was saying, well, it's been 70 years and I want to see this take place. And so they were counting on the truth of Jeremiah's prophecy. And we first read about Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 10. He talks about the time in which these uh, these days are complete. And God says, I'm going to bring you back here. Because I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. That's Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 10 and 11. So here's what it looks like. Here is Jeremiah before 606 B.C., before Nebuchadnezzar comes, and he takes the people of Judah off into captivity because of their sin. They had neglected God, they had forgotten God, and God is going to use Babylon to punish them. So Jeremiah writes about it before it happens. Daniel writes about it during the time in which they are in captivity. And Ezra writes about it once they've come back home. This was a big event. And so what happens in Ezra chapter 1 is that a king of the Medo-Persian Empire by the name of Cyrus the Great comes to power. And as he comes to power in 539 B.C., he makes a proclamation in which he tells all the Jews who are living in Babylon that you can come back and go to Jerusalem and to Judah and you can rebuild the temple. God told them this was going to happen. And now it's taking place. And when they get back, it's a time of restoration. And it's interesting that Ezra chapter 1 tells us what is necessary for restoration to be possible. When it comes to the restoration that took place then, and even the restoration that takes place now, you need a favorable government. 
And so verses 1 through 4 and verses 7 through 11 shows us Cyrus the Great. He's charitable. He's magnanimous. He says, you can go and you can go back and do the work that your God has told you to do. But you also had to have willing builders. People who, given permission, were willing to roll up their sleeves and get to the work. Verse 5. And there had to be those who were supportive among the people. And you see that in verse 6. And there also had to be the providence of God. God had to work through time and events to open the door to make this a possibility. Now, for just a moment, I'd like to apply that today. I want you to think about the fact that, at least for the time being, that we have a favorable government. We have a government that still allows us to be able to teach and preach the gospel to those who are around us, our neighbors. And as we have the ability to do so in the workplace and at school. And that's getting harder. But the door is still open. But that door is not open all over the world. And that door has not always been open in every generation. And so we realize that while this door is open, God has got to have us being willing builders who are supportive of this work, who are trusting in the providence of God in order for us to walk through the doors that He opens. We get to Ezra chapter 2 and we find an example concerning the people. When you look at the people that you read about in Ezra chapter 2, the first thing that you're struck by is the fact that these were people who were willing to endure difficulty. To think about what it had to be to be one of the people who accepted Cyrus's invitation. They had to travel over a thousand miles from Babylon to come back home to Judah and Jerusalem. They had to endure leaving the prosperity and the peace and the homes that they had made. The prosperity they enjoyed by living in Babylon to come back home and to rebuild the temple. But they were willing to do the difficult. We are never going to restore New Testament Christianity if we're not willing to do the difficult. Not only that, we find that they were those who were submissive to God and those God-appointed leaders. You see that in verses 1 and 2, that they were willing to follow God and God was counting on them to follow those leaders that He had appointed. And we think about the way that God has organized His church today. He has leaders Those who are submissive to Him, who we are to follow in order to do the work of restoration that's ongoing. But then through verse 3 through 67, they were a purposed people. When we look at these folks, they had different works and different titles. They were priests and Levites. They were gatekeepers. They were uh, temple servants. They were Solomon's servants. They were individuals who didn't even know their genealogy, but they were willing to be involved in the work of restoration, to come along for the work. They all had a different hat to wear. They all had a different role to fulfill. But God was counting on them to see what they could do. We also find in verse 68 and 69 of chapter 2 that they were generous people. They gave according to their ability. They gave willingly in order for this work of restoration to take place. And by the way, I I think about what's said about them, and it reminds me of the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through verse 9, and also in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. What does it take for us to restore the New Testament church? It takes us being individuals who are generous givers, who give according to our ability. 
Now, here's the thing to keep in mind as we look at the principles of restoration tonight. When they left Babylon and they traveled a thousand miles and they left their houses and they left their prosperity in Babylon and they came back home, that was not the end. Coming home was the beginning. You're going, Neil, what does that have to do with us today? We're to be involved in the work of restoration. You see, when we think about what sets apart New Testament Christianity, the church of our Lord and Savior Christ, from the religious world around us, it is that we are dedicated to the principle of restoring New Testament Christianity. We're not doing what we do because of tradition, because of councils and creeds that men have come up with. We are doing what we're doing because of a pattern that exists in the New Testament. When we think about the different things that we do and who we are as the people of God, we're trying to restore the pattern of the New Testament when it comes to God's plan of salvation. Why is it that we hear God's Word and believe that Jesus is the Christ and repent of sins and confess that Christ is Lord unto salvation and are baptized to have our sins washed away? It is not, it is not Church of Christ doctrine. It's because of what the New Testament has to say. And so we are striving to restore the pattern of the New Testament when it comes to God's plan of salvation. We're also seeking to restore the pattern of the New Testament when it comes to church organization. You know, I find this happens when I go out into the community, and oftentimes when somebody finds out who I am, they say, oh, you're the pastor. I don't correct them on the spot, but it it is the idea that there's a misunderstanding about church organization in the religious world. And so we're seeking to restore that pattern. In the New Christians class this morning, we were talking about authority, that it starts with the Father, and it goes to the authority that He gives to Christ. And Christ gives the authority to the apostles to teach what He has said through the Holy Spirit, who He was going to send in His name. And so the apostles wrote it down, and the prophets, uh, Ephesians 2.21, in the New Testament. And so when it comes to how we're organized, we're not just doing it because that's what we want to do. We're doing it because the New Testament says that that's how it's supposed to be. You see, when it comes to how we worship God, we are seeking to follow the pattern of the New Testament. Why do we take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week? Why do we sing without the accompaniment of mechanical instruments of music? It's not Church of Christ doctrine. It's the doctrine of Christ that we're seeking to follow in restoring the church of the New Testament. It also applies to the idea of the work that we're to do. Why is it that we do what we do as the body of Christ when it comes to seeking the lost, evangelism, when it comes to building up the body of Christ, edification, when it comes to meeting the needs of our community, benevolence? We didn't just come up with that. We see that in the New Testament and we're seeking to restore that. We're seeking to restore the fellowship of the New Testament of being closer to one another and being involved in each other's lives and building a bond to be the family of God, all of us, to help us to be as they were in the first century. Just look at Acts 2, 42-47. To fulfill what Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by the love that you have one for another. And there's so much more to say with regard to the pattern of the New Testament. But we do what we do. We restore what the New Testament says because God has us here on this earth to be the church of His Son. And we're seeking to spread that to everybody who will listen. The work of restoration is not easy. It can be very difficult. 
And a perusal of Ezra chapter 3 can show us just how hard it can be, but how rewarding it is when we do it. So I want you to see with me some principles of restoration from Ezra chapter 3. First of all, the work of restoration requires unity. First thing that we see in verse 1 as he leads out in the chapter is that those who had come back to Jerusalem or to Judah gathered together in Jerusalem as one man. There's a spirit of unity that brought them together. You know, I, I can't remember um, all that we did the first time that we did this, but when I lived in Richmond, Virginia, we were going to meet uh, my uh, Kathy's sister and her husband in uh, New, New Harmony, Indiana. So not too far from here in the state park there right on the Wabash River. They were living in, in Benita, Oklahoma. And so we met in the middle. We got as far as we could from Richmond, got to Lexington, Kentucky. And it was a place I always wanted to stop because of all the restoration history. I found, at least somebody helped me to find, Steve Johnson, the preacher at North Lexington, helped me to find the... Uh, the house of Moses Lord. I've been back several times. Brother Beeson, Brother Rogers, nobody can find it now, but I trust Brother Johnson. I saw Moses Lord's house. That was pretty neat. I went to the Lexington Cemetery. And I walked around and I saw people that I studied about in school. Men like Barton Stone and Raccoon John Smith and J.W. McGarvey and others whose graves are there. Almost a decade before that, I went with my father-in-law when he was preaching in Ohio over to Bethany, West Virginia, and I went through uh, Alexander Campbell's mansion. Now, these individuals were individuals who were dedicated to the plea of leaving behind religious division and standing on the foundation of New Testament Christianity. The first lectureship we had at Cold Harbor, one of the speakers was the late Bobby Duncan, And he says that religious division exists because the majority of people in religion do not uh, not desire unity enough to give up the teachings and the practices that cause division and unite upon what uh, will bring all believers in Christ together. When you think about the plea of Jesus... The thing that was so important on his mind, the night before he goes to the cross, he is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying first for his apostles in John 17, in verse 1 through verse 19. And then in verse 20, he says, I don't just pray for these. I pray for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. They believed. They stood on the foundation and and heeded the warning of the Apostle Paul who said that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. You know, it's helpful to us in pursuing the restoring of the New Testament church and realizing that it requires unity on our part to ask how far was Jesus willing to go in order to achieve unity? The Apostle Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are sometimes afar off are made near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition, having slain in his body the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so to make of himself of two, one new man. And that that oneness, those two are made one in his body to God through the cross as he has slain the enmity thereby. Jesus cared enough to die. That we be one. And that's what they were about in Ezra's day. They were working. They were restoring as one man. 
That's what God wants His believers doing today. It's what He wants you and I doing. Being united on what His Word has to say. The work of restoration requires unity. But then I suggest to you, number two, that the work of restoration requires divine guidance. If you're going to worship under the old law, you've got to have an altar. And so what they needed in Ezra's day were people who understand, who were schooled in the law of Moses and knew how to build it and knew what had to happen in order for sacrifices to take place. The book of Deuteronomy in chapter 12, verse 5 and 6 gave us who was to do it, where it was to be done, and what the sacrifices were to be. And so there was no restoring unless they were doing God things in God's way. There's no way around that. That's restoration. We've got to go according to divine guidance. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 10:23, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. He's given us a pattern. He says, let me show you the way I want you to go. But then third, I would suggest to you that the work of restoration requires courage. That's a little bit of a different direction, isn't it? When we see how it starts, it starts with a a unity that's built on the foundation of Christ. It requires God to be our supreme leader who says, I want you to go in the direction that I tell you. But this third thing has to do with our demeanor, the way that we respond to the challenge of restoration. Is it difficult in our cultural environment to try to restore New Testament Christianity today? If you don't think it is, then maybe you've not examined critically enough some of the issues that are dealt with on the pages of the New Testament. Before we get to that, I want you to think about what's going on in Ezra's day. They come back and they're in the midst of people who have settled while they were off in Babylonian captivity. They were enemies. They were going to be perpetual thorns in their sides. And you've got to think that this ragtag bunch of recent returnees had to feel like they were easy prey to the enemies that were all around them. But you'll notice in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 3 that at least on this occasion they had the courage to do what God was telling them to do. But, spoiler alert, if you keep reading the book of Ezra... The Samaritans are going to frustrate them and they're going to bring this work that they start to a halt. And here's what that tells me, that I have to fight the battle of courage not once but continually. That we as the body of Christ here, we can't just win one battle. We've got to continue to be resilient in the face of opposition. Think about the culture that we live in right now. To restore New Testament Christianity involves restoring what the New Testament says about God's pattern for the home. God's pattern of sexuality. God's pattern with regard even to things like gender. And think about how the message that we have and that we need to share with regard to God's pattern for the family flies in the face of what our culture is preaching. You can't look anywhere without seeing the co-opting of the rainbow. You see, that's the culture in which we find ourselves. And what does it take for us to succeed in the face of that? But it's more than that. To teach distinctive New Testament principles. I was talking to a member here that it didn't happen that long ago. She's the only member of the church and did not bring up the subject. But someone knew that the place where she attended was a place that taught that baptism is necessary for the remission of sins. And so four or five of them, she said, began to hit her all at once and saying, what about the thief on the cross? What about, you know, John 3, 16? What about Acts 16 and verse 31? And she said it was coming from all different directions. 
How often do you face that in trying to stand for what the Lord's not being ugly, not being mean-spirited, but standing where the New Testament stands with regard to what His will is? It's unpopular. And what it requires of us is courage. The Apostle Paul called Timothy his son in the faith. And we read about Timothy first in Acts chapter 16. And this is a man courageous enough to go with the Apostle Paul and to see him beaten and put into prison. He had gone with him in so many different ways and places. And the Apostle Paul saw him as a faithful young man. But in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7 he says, God has not given to us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The the encouragement to him is an encouragement to you and me. There's going to be times in which we need courage to stand for New Testament Christianity. No less than the great Apostle Paul asked others to pray for him that he might have courage. Ephesians 6 and verse 20. Is it right? Is it good? Does God want us to restore New Testament Christianity? Absolutely. But what does it require of us? Sometimes it requires great courage to suffer embarrassment and even perhaps ridicule for standing up as we should for our Lord. But then fourth, when it comes to restoration, the work of restoration requires obedience. You can see it there in verse 4. The, the religion of Ezra's day was an as-it-is-written religion. The religion of Ezra's day was as, an, as the ordinances called for religion. As the day requires religion. They understood that by its definition that to restore what God had called for meant that they had to make happen what it was that God desired to happen. That meant that they had to obey. And this is seen for us, isn't it, in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, essentially Paul says it's God's house, it's God's rules. You've got to do it His way or it won't be done right. But then we also see that the work of restoration requires sacrifice. In verse 5 through 7, there's no way around that. Paul says in Romans 12 that we are to give ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. But they were sacrificial people in Ezra's day. In Ezra's day, we'll find that they were involved in free will offerings. That's remarkable to me. That is, that they were not just simply acting under the stipulations of the law of Moses. This was not a simple tithe where they were giving what was regulated under the old law. Here were individuals who believed in the idea of restoration enough that they of their own accord, they gave. You'll also see that what they gave was uh, out of uh, their money. They gave human effort. They gave materials. They gave food and drink and oil and lumber, verse 5 through verse 7. Nobody was exempt. Everybody was expected to be involved in that. And that sacrifice was essential for restoration to take place. When I look at the early church, I see sacrifice that was a part. Jesus holds up a woman who had almost nothing, who sacrificed, and who's her, her mindset, her heart, that showed the spirit that our Lord wants us to have. I guess it was in the prayer this morning that Grant prayed that it's not just our money that God wants. He wants our time. He wants our, he wants our abilities. They were sacrificial in Ezra's day. In the early church, God wants that of you and me. But then six, I want you to notice with me that the work of restoration requires involvement. Verse eight through verse ten. 
And it seems that Ezra, just like Nehemiah, whenever he talks about something that God wants done, he starts at the top. He starts with Zerubbabel, uh, the son of Shealtiel, who was the governor of Judah. And then there was Jeshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. And then, if you'll notice, there was Nehemiah. Nehemiah and those 11 men who were the shepherds who brought the people back. Look at, at Ezra chapter 2, beginning at verse 3. And they were involved in the work. You know what we appreciate about our leaders? And I'll tell you what, I appreciate about our elders here. They're not men that sit back in, the, in an armchair and say, hey, y'all need to go out and do X, Y, and Z. They're not just sitting back, you know, like, like the fat cat idea, and they're telling everybody else, you go here, you go do that, you go do the other. What I appreciate about them is the example that they give in their leadership. And that's how it was in Ezra's day. At the top, then I noticed that it was the Levites, ages 20 and older. These were the full-time religious workers. They got out and they did the work. With Jeshua, it wasn't just Jeshua. It was Jeshua and his family, the high priest and his wife and his kids. They were involved in not just saying, hey, you need to go out and do this. They led the way. There was Cadmiel's family. There were the workers. There was something for everybody to do. When I look at how the New Testament lays out for us the work of the church, there is work that God has appointed for elders and deacons and preachers and teachers and the members to do. Each of us have a different task, but God wants us involved in that. You know, the work that was done a couple of years ago to try to draft and draw up an inactive vision statement, and then those seven uh, areas, those, those vision groups that exist, they're all areas that are meant to provide us a means and a way to be involved in the work of the church. If we're going to restore the Lord's church to be what it was in the first century as effectively as possible, then it's going to require all of us saying, here am I, send me, where can I be put to work? Then I also want you to notice one other element of restoration. The work of restoration requires the heart. And I love the fact that this is how the chapter ends in verse 11 through verse 13. That after giving us ideas like the burnt offerings, and it's not just about sacrifices and altars and temples. You'll find that they're worshiping, they're singing, they're praising God, and they're giving thanks in verse 11. And as they had not yet laid the foundation in the Bible reading that was done for us a moment ago so well, in verse 1 through verse 7, as Mike read it to us, in the second part of the chapter, they did get to the work of laying down the foundation of the temple. And it was a cause of celebration for the people who had voluntarily left at King Cyrus's uh, proclamation and they came back. This was all new to them. They'd heard about this land that their fathers and their grandfathers had dwelled in where the great David and Solomon and others had been and Moses and so many great things that had been done. Here they are back home for the first time and getting to be involved in something so significant. What do they do when the foundation is laid? They rejoice. They shout. They're excited. And of course we read in verse 12 that they're the older people. It's amazing. I guess there were folks who came back that had to have been at least in their 70s, but maybe 80s and 90s, maybe over 100. They had seen so much. They had seen the time before Nebuchadnezzar had come in and had destroyed the temple in 586 B.C. And now they were coming back home and they were seeing the relatively modest foundation that was being put down. And they wept. And they lamented and they mourned because it was so modest compared to what Solomon's temple was. 
It's remarkable, isn't it, what's said in verse 13? That the shouting and the weeping was so loud that the people could hear it from far away. And if you were at some adjoining village and you were hearing all the ruckus that was going on in Jerusalem, you had no idea. Are they celebrating or are they mourning? The point is, none of them were disengaged. None of them were aloof and indifferent. The heart was engaged. Think about worship for a moment. In John chapter 4 and verse 24, Jesus says, God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. It is not simply about restoring the right things. It's about having the right disposition and heart in doing it. Oh, Matthew 15, 8 and 9, Jesus says that people draw near to Him with their mouths and they honor Him with their lips, but their hearts are far away from Him. God wants us near. He wants our hearts involved in the work of restoration. He wants us to care. He wants us to be enthused about it. And I submit to you this, that if we're not, then we won't be involved in restoration. We may go through the motions. We might do the right things externally. But we will not have restored the church of the New Testament. Because they were a people who did what was right from the inside out. And it's always been that way. God's wanted our hearts and not just our actions. We're not trying to restore our own traditions. We're not trying to restore what would please the culture and what they desire. We're not trying to do just what we please and just what we want. We're not trying to blend in to the larger religious world. We are trying to be nothing more than the church of the New Testament. I've not done this. I know that at least one of you in this uh, auditorium is involved in a restoration project right now of an old vehicle. And I know several of you have done that in the past. What you do is you take something that was once in a specific condition, but maybe through time and rust and disrepair, it's not what it was, or maybe things have been replaced on that that are not the original. But if you want to be involved in a true restoration, you want to get everything back, down to things like the radio and the... the uh, the why well, it's been so long I can't remember we have the buttons now when you wind it up you know what I'm talking about that thing the crank you know um, you want to do that everything the little things the things that matter we had an old we don't have heirlooms in the Pollard family but there was a little table I remember when I was two years old it was a, we called it a telephone table it had those lion claw feet on it and I remember that it was, boy some of my earliest memories. I have no idea what condition it was in then. It seemed just great to me. But by the time that Kathy and I got married, so that had been about 20 years later, and I saw that table, it was just, the paint was gone and there were scratches all in it. And, and it was, I guess it was about ready for goodwill. But we were poor and we needed something to put things on. And so we just put a, a tablecloth over it for years. When I moved to Virginia, a good buddy of mine was in the furniture restoration business. And I asked him, could you restore that? He, he knew the table. He looked, uh, this was in the early years of the Internet. He looked online. He saw what color it was supposed to be. He even found one of those, uh, in one of those surplus stores, he found one of those claw feet because it was missing one. And then he brought it back to me. And it was amazing. It was, it was taken back to its original condition. That's restoration. 
We're not trying to restore something from 200 years ago that was started by Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone. If that's what you think, that's not New Testament restoration. We're trying to go, and that's what they were saying, let's go all the way back to the New Testament and be what God wants us to be in our worship, in our work, in our doctrine, and in our teaching. I want to settle for nothing less than that because that's what Jesus died for. But it's work. It's hard work, but it's doable work. And may I suggest it's work that we're currently involved in doing. It's what we're doing each and every day. And it's why we're trying to share the gospel with people who are lost. It's why we're trying to strengthen the church family in all that we do. It's why we're trying to be as visible as we can to the community in Bowling Green and Warren County and as far as we can shine our light because we're trying not to glorify us but Him and to fulfill His dying plea that we be one in Him as He and the Father are one so that the world may believe that He has sent Him. Restoration begins with us as individuals. It could be that you have not yet made the decision to become a part of the body of Jesus Christ. You don't join, you're added. How? By that plan of salvation we mentioned earlier. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10 and verse 17. That faith produced is a faith that is necessary, that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8 and verse 24, that leads you to repent of sins, to avoid perishing, Luke 13, 3, in order to have salvation, 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. It's what they were told the first time the gospel was preached in Acts 2 and verse 38. For the forgiveness of sins. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation, Romans 10 and verse 10. And then, and now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, calling on the name of the Lord, Acts 22 and verse 16. That's God's plan. If you want to be a part of the church of the New Testament, follow that plan. He will add you to his church. And then that's when we get to work. Be faithful unto death. It's not just a pithy little phrase. It is so much more. It involves all that we've been talking about tonight. He wants us to be involved. You and I are restorers as we leave this building. Part of a great restoration that Jesus died to make possible. Let's be faithful in that. Let's do our part and have the courage we need in the face of a culture that's not really looking for that in some cases, but there are so many that are. Maybe as a child of God, you need to repent of sins or ask us to pray with you and for you with regard to something that you're struggling with in your life. It would be our great honor to do that if that's your need. If you need to respond to this invitation, won't you come right now as we stand and sing?